to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant the seeds of change. I'm Karen Olson-Johnson, and we are live on Facebook, people, if you'd like to join us. I'm the co-director of the Women's Congress for Future Generations and a director of a Minnesota-based nonprofit that's working to save the rhino from extinction in Africa. Look it up sometime. It's called the Council of Contributors. And I'm Laura Hedlund. I, I'm a person whose sense of world history was greatly deepened by reading Charles C. Mann's 1941 or 1491. <laughs> that too, yeah. It's early. Yeah. And 1493. So those are like the years before 1492 when mm-hmm. so-and-so sailed the ocean, the ocean below. Yeah. yeah. But I'm also a person who gained insights about my personal visceral reactions to GMOs after reading Charles C. Mann's latest book just out called The Wizard and the Prophet. Yeah, The Wizard and the Prophet. And joining us by phone is Charles C. Mann. And by the way, we are live. So we are live and you can call in. 952-946-6205. And good morning, Eric Behind the Glass. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> As anyone else knows that there was a foot of snow a few days ago than 50 degrees? Is weather kind of confusing? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Life is confusing. Yeah, because it was like, whoa, we got hit. And then now we're like, well, okay. But then hear this, the Super Bowl, right? No weekend, whatever, after this. And they're saying it's going to be sub-zero. Welcome to Minnesota. Well, our guest by phone, I'm going to hope that you might be able to help sort out some of the confusion. Um, Charles C. Mann, good morning and welcome to the show. Welcome yourselves. And it's my pleasure to be with you. So, yeah, last time you were with us, we were talking about your book, 1491. New, res- new revelations of America's before Columbus. And, you know, one of the biggest things that I take away from 1491, 1493 is this notion that when the people landed, you know, whoever those people were, they were landing into an area that was settled. Right. That, that had its own technologies, that had its own way of doing things, that, you know, in pockets there were huge numbers of people that were working together, communities, you know. I hesitate to use the word settlements because of the connotations of that word, but, yeah, yeah that was that was revelatory, Charles. It really was. So give us a, thumbs, uh, a thumbnail of, of your book, 1491. Um, well, 1491 is about the fact that uh, when the Europeans came here, they came to a place with a long, ancient human history. It was full of people, and uh, those people had um, a rich human history that we've learned an awful lot about, cultures um, that were quite sophisticated uh, with technology that in some cases was superior to what was here, what was in, in, in Europe, and uh, that these people also had been shaping the environment around them for a very, very long time. And you can't really understand most environmental issues in the Americas unless you understand this long history of human habitation. Right. And for instance, when I was in Phoenix, um, the, the, the indigenous people down there had canals, and they had actually survived for like um, for about 1,000 years. And the, for some reason, they left from 1,400. They had these canals, and they had um, a hole in a rock where they could actually uh, they could tell when the uh, solstice were, was based on the, – they, they built around the solstice. So there was a lot of really high-tech stuff going on. In this hemisphere. Yeah, which, you know, totally blows out of the water this notion that was, you know, very much in books with that they landed for it savages. It blows out of the water the idea of white supremacy, doesn't it? Yeah, and <laughs> savages. Yeah, and this, whoa, you know, here we come, we're going to teach you something, right? And and so that those books were, were pivotal for that. But now you have a new book, okay, released this month, I think it was uh, January 23rd, called The Wizard and the Prophet, Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World world that's incredible <laughs> the wizard and the prophet okay <laughs> right so the wizard and the prophet is a dual biography of two people who quoting for, quoting were largely responsible for the creation of the basic intellectual blueprints that institutions around the world use today for understanding our environmental dilemmas so two basic approaches right charles a wizard or a prophet so what's a wizard Okay, well, this really started um, 19 years ago when my daughter was born, and after the birth, the, you know, the hospitals throw the dad out of the uh, um, scene so that the mother and child, people who actually did something, can have a rest, and I'm standing out there in the parking lot at 3 o'clock in the morning, and it suddenly pops into my head that when my daughter is my age, there's going to be about 10 billion people in the world. And I think that the big thing that's happened during my lifetime, you know, when historians look back centuries from now, They'll say what really happened is that hundreds of millions of people in Asia and Latin America and lesser extent Africa lifted themselves out of 
destitution into something like the middle class. So not only will there be 10 billion people, but a whole lot of them will be middle class. And they'll want all the things that middle class people everywhere want. You know, a comfortable home, maybe some way to get around, occasional treats. At one point I was going to call the book Toblerone for 10 billion. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Total what but for 10 editor, billion? For my editor, for some reason, vetoed that. Say, anyway, say the, the title uh, again that you wanted to call was, it. Charles, hello? what was the title that you wanted to call the book again? Toblerone for $10 billion. Oh, Toblerone. Okay, the chocolate. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Yes. So this affluence, you know, this notion of whatever affluence is that drove you to mm-hmm. this? Okay. So, anyway, I, I'm a science journalist, and... When I would interview scientists, um, if I hit it off with them, I would we'd have coffee afterwards, and I'd say, hey, look, there's going to be 10 billion people in 2050 or thereabouts. How are we going to feed everybody? How are we going to give water for everybody? How are we going to provide power? And what are we going to do about climate change? And after a while, I realized the answer fell. The answer they gave me fell into two broad categories, each of which is associated, at least in my mind, with um, one of these two guys that, um, whose name kept coming up over and over again. And one of the figures is Norman Borlaug. And he is the main figure in what's been called the Green Revolution. And this is the combination of high-yielding seeds, um, high-intensity fertilizer, and irrigation that <clears throat> lifted grain yields all over the world in the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s and is responsible for averting huge numbers of um, deaths from starvation, but also had enormous negative environmental impacts and also some terrible social impacts. And this is, he's become the emblem of the idea, which you hear quite a bit, which is science and technology, properly applied, will let you produce your way out of your environmental dilemmas. And will ultimately solve climate change, right? You know, so check, next, okay. All we need to do is get a bunch of scientists on this and we'll be fine, right? Right, absolutely. And you've Mm -hmm. heard this idea many, many times, I'm sure. And so I call those people wizards. Because you should probably call them something like technophiliac milliarist, but of course, no, that's a huge jumble of syllables. Techno- <laughs> Let's call them wizards. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, so, but there are a lot of people who I, you know, the Borlogians who are just like, yeah, this is it. This is, you know, you know, blinders on. This is the way we need to go. You know, you know, I mean, torpedoes ahead kind of thing, Right. Right. And so, you know, part of the book is uh, about these people and how they think and uh, why they think and what their proposed solutions are. Okay. And so now what is the profit approach? Okay. The profit approach is exemplified by a guy named William Vogt. And he is, more than anybody else, the founder of the modern environmental movement. And he wrote in 19, back in 1948, you know, so a long time ago, the first modern we're all going to help book. if you know what I mean. Yeah. And if you... <laughs> Many of the classics of environmental literature, um, ranging from the Sand County Almanac to the Population Bomb to Earth in the Balance to Silent Spring to the Limits to Growth, they all sprang directly from both. And he has, was the first to formulate the idea that, look, the Earth has limits. Um, he called it carrying capacity, but you know, there's other names for it, ecological limits, planetary boundaries. And the basic idea is that there's these natural processes, these natural systems that we have to fit into because we transgress the boundaries of these processes to our peril. And so we have to do all the things that you've, you've heard of, which is conserve, reuse, recycle, you know, turn down the thermostat, put on our cardigan sweaters, you know, eat lower on the food chain. All of this is embodied in the idea that there are natural limits that we try to surpass to our peril. If you think it, I'm going to read a little bit from his book that was written in 1948 so our listeners can get a feel for his um, thinking. Uh, quoting, um, free enterprise has made our country what it is. To this, an ecologist might answer exactly. For free enterprise must bear a large share of the responsibility for devastated forests, vanishing wildlife, crippled ranges, a gullied continent, and roaring floods. Free enterprise divorced from biophysical understanding and social responsibility. That's Volt. That's Volt, yeah. yeah. Who, uh, who wrote The Road to Survival? Um, Charles, don't we see that happening right now? Well, if you're um, a prophet, you look at vote and you say, he had it right, right? And uh-huh. so I try to talk about, in the book, not so much taking sides, but to sort of say, look, these two ways of thinking dominate the way that uh, scientists, researchers, conservationists, and so forth, one or the other, have almost always embraced one or the other of these two sides. 
And I think if you understand the debate, you can understand much more about what goes on when people talk about conservation, when people talk about how to deal with climate change, or when people talk about food production. And, and so you see these debates between wizards and prophets playing out again and again in different spheres. And that's I, I really do love love your book for this reason. Um, that you, you, you quote that both men, while now dead, um, the, the hostilities between these two groups um, continue. You said name-calling has escalated and increasingly become dialogues of the deaf. Is that the big problem, is that we're just not open to each other's viewpoints? Well, that's one certainly one problem, but also... Um, deep in this is that they have different ideas about what the world is like, what nature is like, and what people's relationship to nature is all about. And so for the wizards, nature is like a toolbox. You know, it is full of materials that you can do with as you want, and you can create whatever it is that uh, human beings want. For prophets, they have a sense that nature has a reason for being the way it is, and that the history and the um, ecological systems that created the environments around us have an integrity that should be respected, have a value that's important in and of itself. And these two um, sort of deep apprehensions about the way that the world is dominate, you know, I think drive these fights underneath. And so part of what my book was was an attempt really to try and understand how these different types of people think. Uh, we're talking with Charles C. Mann, the author of this incredible new book called Wizards and Prophets, which is just recently out. Um, we, you have uh, an opportunity to join the join the conversation, and we are Facebook Live as well, 952-946-6205. This is Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. Located just north of 50th in France, the Great Wall Restaurant has provided a delicious taste of authentic Chinese cuisine since 1981. Specializing in Sichuan and Peking dishes, they offer one of the most extensive menus in the Twin Cities. Favorites include hot and sour soup, pan-fried dumplings, and mushu pork with homemade Chinese pancakes. Stop by their Edina location or call for takeout at 952-927-4439. See the full menu at greatwallrestaurant.us. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Shambot from Shambot Family Dentistry. We're the fear-free, get-you-out-of-pain-now dental office. We always offer a free exam and x-rays for new patients because we believe you shouldn't have to pay to find out what's wrong with your teeth. Call today. We're open early and late and Saturdays to fit your schedule. As my daughter Rachel says, If you don't see my dad, please see another dentist. Take care of your teeth because they're the only ones you get. Call 1-800-FIX-MY-TEETH or visit fixmyteeth.us. Six years ago, Dr. Emily Stein was confronted with a life-changing situation. Her grandmother developed rheumatoid arthritis and was unable to maintain her own dental hygiene. Unfortunately, her assisted living facility didn't have the resources to help her maintain her dental health either. Once her dental health deteriorated, her overall health deteriorated too. It wasn't long until she had multiple tooth extractions and a severe stroke. That's when Emily put her Stanford background in microbiology and immunology to work. She created an oral care lozenge, or Smart Mint, that manages oral bacteria to promote strong teeth, healthy gums, and fresh breath. Daily Dental Care is a life sciences company dedicated to addressing public health by targeting the root cause of dental disease. Because let's face it, we all could use a little extra help supplementing our daily dental care routine. Visit dailydentalcareswithans.com or go to Amazon to purchase our lozenges and use promo code DDC95502 for a 25% discount on your first purchase. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Daily Dental Care lozenges are not intended to replace daily dental hygiene practices. Chocolate Celeste is a true celebration. This is Colette, and we've created two themed chocolate collections for this year's football playoffs. These chocolates are the world's finest artisan chocolates with distinct, unforgettable flavors that will sweeten your team's victory and soften the sting of defeat. Having a party? Skull! Check out our football-themed chocolates. We're an approved vendor through the NFL Business Connect program. Call 651-644-3823 or visit chocolatecelest.com. 
Hey, Minnesota, Norman Goldman here. The furniture business is one of those industries that's full of fake sales and false discounts. This is the age of the hashtag illegitimate fake president, and haven't you been lied to enough? That's why you need to check out Habitation Furnishing and Design. Habitation offers some of the coolest furniture in Minneapolis at fair prices every day. No fake sales, no phony discounts, just honest, intriguing, and really unique furniture. Check out Habitation on Excelsior Boulevard in St. Louis Park or visit HabitationDesign.com. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant the seeds of change. I'm Karen Olson-Johnson with Laura Hedlund, and Charles C. Mann is our guest, the author of the newly released Wizard and Prophet, Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World. Uh, welcome back to the show, uh, Charles. Now, one of the things you talk about is that in, in some ways that... Um, uh, People like Lynn Mark Markless argue that humans are really on the edge of a Petri dish. It's simple biology. All life expands, then depletes its food system, and then dies off, perhaps with a few survivors. So are humans, destroy are humans doomed to destroy ourselves? Yeah, well, this was what Lynn thought. She was my neighbor. Um, she lived down the street from me, and she was one of the world's great biologists. And from her point of view, the lesson of biology is very, very clear. Every now and then, a species escapes, as she put it, escapes the bound of natural selection. Usually, predators, um, you know, diseases, lack of resources, whatever, constrain species, and so they, they stay within you know, rough boundaries. Their populations go up and down, but they don't uh, increase extraordinarily. But every now and then, the species manage to escape all of these uh, constraints, and their population explodes, and then what happens is they either totally run out of resources, or they drown in their own wastes, or both. Anyway, it always ends badly. And so she looked at people and she said, we're a successful species, and it's the fate of every successful species to wipe itself out. So from her point of view, um, people like me, who you know, were worried about conservation, who wanted to uh, keep, keep things going, we were nice, but we were kidding ourselves. That just isn't the way that life works. She used to say, species don't pick up after themselves. You know, when the... Uh, Cyanobacteria. That's not what they taught in Girl Scouts, um, by the way. <laughs> You're always supposed to make the place better. <laughs> <laughs> no, she'd say when the cyanobacteria invent, you know, um, evolved photosynthesis, um, they released oxygen into the world. And in the great oxidation event, uh, you know, several billion years ago, they killed off 99% of the species on the planet. And the cyanobacteria didn't say, oops, sorry, mm. <laughs> we shouldn't have done that. They just went on uh, merrily. You can, and so she thought that. You know, all these things that I was worrying about, I was kidding myself, and I should just sort of pull up my socks and stop whining about it, and this is the way that life works. So and in a million years, the planet would be fine, we just wouldn't be on it. Yeah. That was her point of view. But from for our perspective, as a human perspective, very fatalistic, and, and put in the context of things like Minnesota producing the manure equivalent of 50 million people when there are 5 million people that live in this state, you know, she's probably pretty accurate. Yeah, and then so in a certain way, um, as a species, we're running a gigantic planet-wide experiment to see, is Lynn right? You know, are we unable to control ourselves? And the fact is that uh, no other species has ever done what we're trying to do, which is to constrain our own growth. That just simply hasn't happened. And, uh, you know, from her point of view, if we did this, it would be proof that we are, in fact, special, that we are an unusual species. <laughs> right. Otherwise... You know, we're just another run-of-the-mill species for her. She wasn't all that interested in mammals, which she didn't think were very important. <laughs> and so your basic book is saying that the wizards think we're going to be special because we're going to be, we're going to have a, some techno-optimistic fix to this problem, whereas the prophets are saying, no, we're going to develop permaculture, we're going to um, uh, understand our, our role, not in a, as an ego, but an eco-based system. We're going to um, understand our, our, our role. We're going to see water as life, for instance, and transform. Right. So those are the two camps, basically. Right. And both of them, although they get into terrible fights, are united in their belief that maybe Lynn Margulis is wrong and uh, we can save ourselves. And so she is sort of like a Greek chorus throughout the book. She kind of sort of pops up to sort of hoot and holler and thumb her nose at you know, all of our ideas about how we might do this and say, oh, come on, stop kidding yourself. Well, because, you know, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate. What of the ideas that we've had so far have we really seen work? Well, you know, almost no ideas that we've seen um, have really worked so far, but also the, I think the real response is that we haven't tried them that much. 
Um, when you think about the kind of systems that uh, both wizards and prophets are trying to change, they're enormous. And so you would expect it would take some time to turn the wheel. For example, if we want to replace fossil fuels by uh, renewables, the, it's taken a century to build up the energy grid that we have. You wouldn't expect that we could turn it around overnight. So the fact that we haven't done it yet isn't, to my mind, any proof that it's impossible. It's just a sign of how big the task is. And mm -hmm. if, we, if we look at the food system, then uh, the wizards are looking at C4 photosynthesis. What the heck is C4 yes. photosynthesis? Okay, well, one of the things that, you, as I'm sure you guys know, is that when you talk to wizards, you know, these, tech, um, these guys who believe in technology, and you ask them how we're going to feed ourselves, they say GMOs genetically modified organisms. Um, and so then one of the things that I do in the book is I look at um, some of the big projects that they're enthusiastic about. And these projects, um, these big mega projects, bear the same resemblance to, you know, typical GMOs that a paper airplane does to a um, Boeing 787. Uh -huh. So the, this new stuff is, is much, much more... Uh, re repeat that. I mean, this stuff is really what, the, what they're talking about with C pho photosynthesis is really changing the blueprint of life. Yes, this is a, um, a really extraordinary um, project. I think even people who are opposed to it um, would have to recognize that it's uh, enormously ambitious. And it's quite different um, from what, you know, Monsanto does. What Monsanto does is they find a gene um you know, for example, you know, in a bacterium in a waste pond, which was the case for um, Roundup Ready soybeans, and they take this foreign gene and they insert it into a crop, and then they're able to sell their patented goo, um, so that you have uh, Roundup Ready soybeans, and then they can spray your Roundup, and it won't, and it will kill everything else, but not the soybeans. And that's typically the way that GMOs have done. This is very, very different. Um, um, by the way, this is not to encourage you and say you have to support this. I just want you, you to sort of understand what it is. Um, and what they're trying to do is change the way photosynthesis works in rice. Um, photosynthesis depends on an enzyme called Rubisco. And an enzyme is a catalyst. It's, a, it's like a pedestrian that um, darts out into an intersection, causes a huge traffic accident, runs back. When their accident's cleaned up, it runs out and causes another traffic accident. It's a chemical that causes a reaction but isn't itself affected by that reaction. And your body has thousands and thousands of enzymes working in it, and they typically catalyze, as they say, um, thousands and thousands of reactions every second. They're enormously active molecules. Rubisco is the key enzyme for photosynthesis. What it does is it's the chemical that reaches out, grabs the carbon dioxide, and pulls it into the reaction. And, the, and as you know, in photosynthesis, carbon dioxide and water come together to um, form the basic compounds that make plants possible and make all of our lives possible. Well, Rubisco, this key part of it, is like the slowest enzyme known. Most enzymes catalyze thousands of reactions per second. Rubisco does two or three. It's like a couch potato. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you fertilize crops, basically, is to help them produce the reason that you fertilize plants, you know, um, whether you do it with organic or Charles, we're going to need to take a break, and we're going to come back to this. In. Charles, we're going to need to take a break, and we're going to come back to this, because I know it's very complex, but this is also being funded by Bill and uh, Linda McGa uh, Gates Foundation, and yes, so yes. they're talking about hacking photosynthesis. Yeah, and it, that's, that's, that's what the Wizards want to do. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coo. Chocolat Celeste is a true celebration. This is Colette, and we've created two themed chocolate collections for this year's football playoffs. These chocolates are the world's finest artisan chocolates with distinct, unforgettable flavors that will sweeten your team's victory and soften the sting of defeat. 
Having a party? Skull! Check out our football-themed chocolates. We're an approved vendor through the NFL Business Connect program. Call 651-644-3823 or visit chocolatecelest.com. Did you know that tooth decay is the most common disease in America? And that over half the American population has some form of periodontal disease? Simply brushing and flossing don't seem to be enough. The abundant bacteria in your mouth thrive off sugar to produce acid and plaque. But what if you could actually prevent bacteria from converting sugar into the harmful byproducts responsible for tooth decay and periodontal disease? Daily Dental Care is a life sciences company that leverages our microbiology expertise to create oral care products that promote strong teeth, healthy gums, and fresh breath. Our lozenges safely and effectively neutralize harmful bacteria and their disease-causing byproducts like acid and plaque without harming health-promoting bacteria that guard your mouth against the destruction that sugar causes. Supplement your daily dental hygiene routine with our convenient dental lozenges. Go to dailydentalcareswithans.com or Amazon to purchase and use promo code DDC95001 at checkout for a 25% discount on your first purchase. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Daily dental care lozenges are not intended to replace daily dental hygiene practices. Reimagine a world without violence. On Saturday, January 27th, you're invited to participate in this day-long conference sponsored by Plymouth Congregational Church and the Reimagining Community. Opening and closing services will be led by musician Sarah Thompson. Workshop sessions will focus on immigration, the violence of racism and how to begin dismantling white supremacy, the LGBTQ community and the violence they live with every day, facing trauma, the police community relationship, using art to help us reimagine nonviolent communication practices within families, and much more. This is the 25th anniversary of the original Reimagining Conference. Come join with others in exploring nonviolence, peace, and healing with attention to the individual, family, and community. Again, this day-long conference takes place Saturday, January 27th at Plymouth Congregational Church in downtown Minneapolis. Online registration is open until January 23rd, with early bird registration available through January 15th. Find a full schedule of events and register online at reimaginingcommunity.org. Let's reimagine a world without violence together. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. With your AM 950 weather, this is Eric Nelson. Today will be mostly sunny with a high near 32. And tonight, mostly cloudy with a low around 11. Sunday will be partly sunny with a high near 18. Sunday night will be partly cloudy with a low around 3. Monday will be mostly clear skies with a high of 15 and a low of 3. Eat local Minnesota's restaurant of the week is Burger Moe's. Located in downtown St. Paul, Burger Moe's is the perfect neighborhood gathering spot before or after XL Energy events. Offering two happy hours and more than 60 beers on tap. Check out Burger Moe's at 242 West 7th Street, St. Paul. Full menu at BurgerMoe's.com. So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and on the phone with us is Charles C. Mann. And when we went to break, you were talking about um, the plans from the techno wizards to hack photosynthesis, which is a big deal. <laughs> yeah, no, it's an enormous deal, and I, I think that uh, people should understand uh, um, what, is, what is going on. It doesn't mean they have to support it. It doesn't mean they have to endorse it, but it's important to understand it. Um, the, the Wizards' plan is basically through this huge project. Um, there's, there's a couple of ones like it, but I focus on the C4 Rice Initiative because that's furthest along. And the idea is that you have, the, as I mentioned, this enzyme called Rubisco that's key to photosynthesis. It's what's grabs the carbon dioxide. It's extraordinarily slow and inefficient. Nature has never been able to improve it over the uh, billion and a half years since, uh, or thereabouts since photosynthesis was evolved. And however, nature has come up with a workaround. Um, and that's called C4 photosynthesis, which is evolved independently about 60 times. And so the idea is that most green plants probably have the precursor genes that allows them to become C4 photosynthesis. And there's a couple of reasons that this is very important. Because C4 photosynthesis is so much more efficient, plants with this type of photosynthesis grow much faster. If you guys in the Middle West have ever um, mowed a lawn, you know that the crabgrass, a few days later, grows like mad, and the um, regular grass that you see is growing much more slowly. Crabgrass is C4 photosynthesis. Regular grass is um, 
regular photosynthesis. If you plant wheat and corn side by side, the corn very, very rapidly grows and the wheat is much slower. Corn is C4 photosynthesis. Wheat is regular photosynthesis. And so if they could create this mechanism in rice, the thought is you would be able to have perhaps an extra crop per year of rice. You might be able to grow more um, more um, rice itself. And this would be an enormous change. Um, they would be effectively creating a new species. Rice now is Oriza sativa. Maybe it would be Oriza nova. And this would be their view, how you're going to feed the world. And, uh, of course, for the profits, for people who are environmentalists, they look at this as, wait a minute, this is trying to perpetuate the exact system of industrial agriculture. That's the problem. It's like trying to solve a fire by throwing gasoline on it. It's completely crazy. It's pushing further along in a direction that we shouldn't be going on in the first place. You know, it strikes me in these conversations, you know, vote, vote and uh, Borlaug, um, by the way, I've been called a Luddite to Charles. Um, the, it strikes me in these conversations that the that, you know, the, the opposing views, you know, and sitting in one camp versus the other is, and and not talking to each other, because I mean, when Laura and I were talking during break, you know, the, the enzymatic reactions that are happening in photosynthesis and Robesco being slow is, in fact, problematic to food production. And if we are trying yes. to feed 10 billion people, you know, then it's, but it's like, how can we talk about these things together, which is, which is, you know, that is, I mean, that's at the crux of a lot of this, isn't it? Yes, um, exactly. And, um, you know, the, the wizards say, look, this is a system we have, um, and we got to make it work. And here is this um, way that you have, the C4 Rice Initiative is a nonprofit um, project. They're going to take the results and give them away to farmers if farmers want, want them. And they say, this has been a system that has proven to feed everyone. Let's make it work. The profits say, um, wait a minute, this is a system that, indeed has fed more people, but at the cost of enormous environmental damage, isn't there something else that, that we can do? <laughs> and instead of uh, trying to cooperate and see maybe that you could do this or that over here and this or that over there, they tend to, be, they tend to become more and more dogmatic. All and, so, and so, and so you, you visited a farm, uh, Loyal Nichols, um, and he employs Floyd, yeah. 40 workers on 1,000 crops. And when I read that part of your book, it just sort of made me exhale. I mean, it felt, it sensed better to me. <laughs> so tell, me, tell us, I mean, what are those solutions? What, what does Loyal, Loyal Nichols' farm looks like, look like? Well, um, it looks much more like a natural ecosystem than a conventional farm. A conventional farm will have, you know, one or two crops um, grown over large areas, and they're called industrial monocultures. Lloyd's uh, farm, by contrast, is something completely different. Um, it sprawls over almost 600 acres, and he has a thousand different varieties. Um, it's enormously complex. It's as complex, perhaps, as a natural eco ecosystem. The crops are constantly shifting oh, so around, and he has huge numbers of people that take care of it. It's like a little community in and of itself. And so, and so both, both the, uh, I, I love this quote from E.O. Wilson, I know you've done some work, that is that um, if we use the unrelenting application of reason, a basic sense of kindness, and an understanding of who we are, we can create a much better world. And so sometimes the wizards, I think, think the prophets are not using reason, right? And, right, and, and that's wrong. the prophets think the wizards are just mean people. <laughs> <laughs> right, and that's Basically. also wrong. I mean, the, the people who are doing the C4 Rights Initiative, they are working their hearts out, and they are seriously convinced that what they're doing is the best for the world. And they are totally excited about being able to give the fruits of their, um, their, their work to farmers in Asia to grow more rice, to feed people in the, in, in the future. Um, they're not mean people at all. They are, however, hooked up into the system of industrial agriculture, which the prophets see as very, very problematic in and of itself. Right. Now, you said work their heart out. And one of the things we did not get to, and I want to make sure we do, is the biology. Your, your book is reads like, a non, reads like a fiction book, the first half of it. It's a, it's a page-turner because you include all these details. So Norman Borlaug, who's the only person from the University of Minnesota to win a Nobel Peace Prize, um, he worked his heart out, didn't he? Yeah, he came from an extremely poor family in northeast Iowa, um, was the first of his family to go to college. Um, he went largely because uh, he was trying to escape from the farm, which is just this horrendous uh, task every every year in these very poor farms. 
and he graduates in the middle of the depression. He can't get um, work, so he sticks around, and he almost accidentally gets a PhD with this uh, guy at the uh, University of Minnesota named Elvin Stakeman, a major uh, 20th century scientist, and he ends up in this project in Mexico uh, where a small group of scientists funded by the Rockefeller Foundation with almost no equipment um, and tools is trying to improve Mexican corn because Mexico is on the verge of starving to death. This is in the 1940s. People are extremely poor. And there's this tiny side project to look at um, and try to see if they can develop strains of wheat that are immune to stem rust, which is uh, the ancient predator of wheat. Borlaug's the only guy there. And by himself, no tools, um, with just mm-hmm. a very few Mexican graduate students as help. He um, does tremendous numbers of crosses, plants huge areas in this with this, these experiments, and develops this kind of super wheat that w- eventually wins him the Nobel Prize. I've it's heard it really referred to as, as magic wheat, you know, which is for you to, to talk about his history means that there was not magic involved at all. It was hard work, wasn't it? Oh, just enormous amounts of um, hard work. And he was working, you know, by himself with very, very few tools, no laboratory, up in, you know, 100-degree heat, day after day, sleeping in the fields with, you know, mice running over his sleeping bag at night. It was uh, it was very, very tough uh, for him. But he persevered, and, um, you know, for better and worse, he changed the world. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, credited with saving um, hundreds of millions of lives. Um, and, right. you know, the other, the, so uh, your biography is absolutely beautiful. I must, I'm going to say that again and again. This, because uh, I was, I was reading and laughing. I was just, I was so engaged with this person's life history. I was also engaged on all these little things that could have happened to him, but did not. Like, uh, like he flunked the University of Minnesota's entrance exam. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, he'd gone to a terrible school in, um, you know, in, in the very poor countryside, and so he wasn't able to get into the University of Minnesota, and he had to get into a, there's a new program to um, essentially bring along people who had been very poorly educated. He was ashamed of, of it, but he signed up for this, and then he was, by working very hard, he was able to promote himself into the regular school. So, and they, they grew up hand-picking um, um, a, um, uh, corn, so that's, the, they hand-picked it, and then they got the tractor. What did the tractor mean to Borlaug's family? Well, to Borlaug, what this meant was that uh, instead of spending about 40% of the farm growing the um, oats and so forth for the animals and spending huge amounts of time to uh, to take, take care of them, they could now plant wheat or um, you know potatoes or whatever it was that they're grown on that acre. They could almost double the amount of food that they produced. It meant a huge um, change in their income, and it meant that, for example, that he could go to college. So he saw in his own personal life the difference that technology could make, and he really took that to heart. If you have a, if you, the difference between working and cutting corn by hand and working with a tractor was you know, embedded in his very being. And this is one of the reasons that he had so much faith in technology. And then by contrast, William Vogt, our prophet, um, tell us a little bit about his background. He also grew up poor. Um, his father ran away when he was um, 11 days old. He ended up in a Brooklyn slum, um, very poor. Uh, he gets to go into one of these schools they have in New York for um, poor kids with some intellectual abilities. He um, graduates as a, um, also the first person in his family to go to college. He's an avid bird watcher. He, um, too, graduates in the time of the Depression. He ends up um, befriending, um, as a very you know, talented and ambitious kid, these major ornithologists at the American Museum of Natural History, and they get him a job as a uh, curator of a park in that's been recently been established. And gradually, even though he has no scientific training, he becomes really useful as an ornithologist. He goes, he gets a job in Peru trying to save um, these guano birds. These are the guane cormorants, mm-hmm. which produce enormous amounts of guano, which is bird excrement on these islands off the coast of Peru, which has been used for fertilizer for centuries and centuries. And they want him to increase the number of birds. And there he has a major revelation. First, he's one of the first people to understand El Nino and the way that the um, currents in the oceans fluctuate. And the second thing he realizes is that these currents set up limits. There can only be so many birds on these islands because every now and then an El Nino comes in, 
the warm water comes in, and the fish that the birds eat on these islands migrate far out into the ocean because they like cold water, and they, um, there's just not enough of them to support the population of the birds that's grown. And so there's no way <clears throat> that you can increase the number of birds beyond a certain point. And he realizes that there are these natural cycles that create a carrying capacity, that create limits on what species can do. And he takes this to heart and realizes that this is also probably true for people. True for people. And this is the funda- yes, and this is the fundamental insight of the yeah. environmental movement, mm-hmm. which is that people are limited, just like other species, by the natural capacities of the systems in which they're embedded. The 50 million pound equivalent of manure in the state of Minnesota is an example yes. of that limiting limiting capacity. So these two very different men, very different, but yet similar in the way they came into being. So, know? yeah, and so in 1948, uh, he published Road to Survivor, Survival, which sold over 800,000 copies. Yeah. He became a bestseller author. And back so, then. Back then. So there's still time for your call. 952-946-6205. Fact is, it's January in Minnesota, and we spend a lot more time indoors. And we're breathing a lot of dry indoor winter air. But don't worry, Standard Heating has the solution. If you install a new furnace this January, you'll not only stay warm and comfortable, you'll also get your choice of a free air purifier or humidifier. Oh, and Standard Heating also offers 0% interest and $0 down on approved credit. Suddenly, this winter doesn't look so bad. Find out more at standardheatingdeals.com. Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, the comfort you deserve. Common Roots Cafe is the perfect spot for the whole family to get delicious local and organic food. They have a great kids menu equipped with games and coloring while parents can enjoy a great local beer, wine, or specialty cocktail. It's never been a fad or a marketing ploy to make everything from scratch with local and organic ingredients. It's always been an unwavering commitment. If they can buy it local and organic or get it from their on-site garden, they will. Common Roots is located off 26th and Lindale and online at commonrootscafe.com. AM 950's annual get-together for like-minded progressives is back. Hi, it's Mike McEntee, and the Blue State Ball is March 10th at the Blaisdell in Minneapolis. I will be there and look forward to talking with you along with Tom Hartman, Norman Goldman, and of course our own Matt McNeil. Plus, expect lots of big-name political guests and candidates. VIP and general admission tickets are on sale now at am950radio.com. Join me, Matt, Norman, and Tom, March 10th at the Blue State Ball. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Shamblot from Shamblot Family Dentistry. We're the fear-free, get-you-out-of-pain-now dental office. And I'm Rachel Shamblot. Did you know a lot of people are afraid of the dentist? You don't need to be afraid of my dad. He makes going to the dentist comfortable and even fun. We don't care if you're a dental regular or haven't seen a dentist in years. We just want to make you comfortable and get you out of pain. If you don't see my dad, please see another dentist. Take care of your teeth because they're the only ones you get. Call 1-800-FIX-MY-TEETH or visit fixmyteeth.us. Saturdays at 1 p.m., you have a chance at a fresh start, a new beginning. Hi, everybody. This is Freddie Bell, host of New Beginnings. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, spirituality, and even entertainment. Every day is a chance for a fresh start. Join us Saturdays at 1 p.m. for New Beginnings with Freddie Bell on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. With all the convenient big box stores that sell appliances, why do so many Minnesotans choose Warner Stellion? Check online to learn that Warner Stellion is a Minnesota family-owned business for over 60 years. Warner Stellion sells more brands than anyone else, and our passionate specialists are committed to impressing you so much that you'll refer us to everyone you know. That's our mission here at Warner Stellion. Ask around, check us out online, and when it's your time to buy appliances, join over 300,000 Minnesota homeowners and choose the specialists, Warner Stellion. So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and on the phone with us is Charles C. Mann, author of The Wizard and the Prophet. Interesting. Very interesting conversation, Charles. You know, and I, to wrap up that conversation that we were having, there's a, um, a quote from this article in The Atlantic where you say, after rec- at first reconciling the two points of the view might have been possible, one can imagine Borlogian wizards considering manure and other natural soil inputs and Vortigan prophets willing to use chemicals as a supplement to, to good soil practice. 
Oh, That's right. So it's trying to world. get the prophets and the wizards together. Because uh-huh. I was actually talking to someone, um, and they say that the potential for really decreasing the pesticide use to like, you know, two percent of what's currently used, that potential's out there. Um, and and so Charles, yes, you do have an article in the economy in the Atlantic ma- magazine coming up in March. Can planet Earth feed ten billion people? What's your answer to that? Well, I think the, the honest answer is we don't know. Right, because it's in the, in the future, and it's very hard to predict the future. So, but to change the way we do things, because what that's what's implied, if we're going to feed 10 billion people, we're going to have to change the way we do things. Can we do that? And I think that if you look back in history, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. People have certainly changed the way they do things. And the example I think of is that if you go back to eight, the year 1800, slavery existed everywhere in the world. It was a foundational human institution. There is no place on the planet where it didn't exist. And then, in a few decades, it became illegal everywhere. And there's now no country in the world in which it's an accepted part of the social fabric. There are certain slaves that continue to exist. The International Labor Organization says there's about 25 million of them around the world. But the difference between the world then and the world now is absolutely extraordinary. Similarly, if you go to 1800, there's no place in the world where women can own property. There's no place in the world where women can go to school. There's no place in the world where women can vote. There's no place in the world where women have any freedom whatsoever. And this has been the case for thousands and thousands of years. The subjugation of women by men is a basic part of the human enterprise and has been for as long as people can remember. Then, in a few decades, there's an enormous transformation. Obviously, as the Me Too movement suggests, it's, you know, got far to go. But the difference between 1800 and now is absolutely phenomenal. And so we clearly can change and can change for the better. And this gives me a lot of hope when I think about what we're going to do in the future. Yeah, it gives me hope too. But it, and yet, it also gives me a sense of urgency. And one of the little details, mm-hmm. so much I wanted to get out. But because um, you also talk about energy problems, and so the wizards want they—they're studying if you put a few million tons of sulfur, you might be able to reduce the impact of climate change through this geoengineering. But then there's also people who have actually, uh, if you just transform one acre of desert through carbon farming, you can offset the equivalent of uh, carbon emitted by 560 Americans. My point is, how do we move this system to a way that functions rationally? Well, what is clear is, um, you know, these tasks in the past, you know, getting rid of slavery, changing um, the rights of women, making it possible for gay people to, be, to function in the public sphere, all these began with people saying, even though it seems hopeless, I'm going to try and do this anyway. And um, I think... You know, it sounds sort of silly and simple, but it's really, there's not much more to it than that, than people saying, I'm not going to allow this not to happen. I insist that this happen. And And, uh, time and time again, that's worked. Time and time again it has worked, and I'm going to add to that, Charles, too. One of the things you point out in that article is that some of these solutions are incredibly simple and right in front of us, like cassava. Okay, that is right. one of them that if we could just if we could just embrace something that is natural, right? And 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 mm-hmm. see it as a solution rather than arguing about, you know, what camp you're in, whatever, you know, because there are some things that are just right right in front of us in the yet to be discovered category. Yeah, on my to-do list is to do a, a cookbook on lentils and and barley. Yeah, lentils. That's lentils not, and yeah. barley. Yeah. And Lynette's joining us from Chaska. Good morning, Lynette. Hey, good morning, Karen and Laura. Thank you for the show. So informative, as always, and I loved last week's show, too, but I didn't get a chance to call in. So, um, And Charles Mann, thank you. Uh, I'm going to check out the books. Um, the whole thing I'm thinking of the whole time you guys are talking is consciousness, consciousness, consciousness. It's really being aware of everything around us and how our actions affect each other and the planet, and that's what's going to save us if we can do that. Ooh, do you agree with that, Charles? Well, absolutely. Um, you know, if you think about it, there you are and say you're in 1780 and you want and you're against slavery and you're one of the tiny minority of people who are then against slavery and but you become aware of what is happening and you spend your time relentlessly telling other people what happens and incredible changes are possible if people are simply um, willing to lay themselves out and say this is happening I don't want it let's make it better and with that consciousness that you're referring to, Lynette, you know, the, as Charles was pointing out, the, you know, the slavery, the pieces, you know, and, and so many other things are coming to light 
now in regard to slavery, you know, the, the, the number of Irish people that were enslaved, that were transported all around the world as slaves, you know, into the Caribbean, into the United States. And these things that are coming to the fore that we're recognizing and seeing are part of exactly what you're saying, Lynette, that consciousness. So thank you for the call and thank you for listening. You're a loyal listener, Lynette. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Have a great morning. Yeah. So uh, we have only two minutes left, and I could talk for a long time. But, Charles, we'd like to ask our guests, what is your idea of food freedom? That's interesting. Um, I certainly say that uh, one of the reasons I moved out of the big city and into the small town where I live is that I wanted to be closer to the to the people who are growing the food that I eat. And uh, one of the great pleasures um, for us and my family has been that just down the street from us is a small family farm. Our friend Jeremy uh, runs at Simple Gifts Farm. And being able to work with Jeremy to um, you know, have my, my children working on, on, on his farm to know something about the food we eat, that seems to me as close to being free as you possibly can with food. So is it is local? You know, a part of this and being back in community. Yeah, no, it's just a really a, a, a pleasure to be completely aware of the system that's providing us with our food. Yeah. I think it's been really valuable for our kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and eating, I'm going to say part of it is, too, you know, that eating locally is is part of the solution, large solution in terms of our carbon footprint. You know, not transporting these things, you know, halfway around the world and eating more locally. Because it is possible, aren't you saying that, Charles? Yeah, it's, it's possible. You know, is it possible in every circumstance? No. I mean, for instance, we grow, we, we drink coffee in the morning. That coffee cannot grow in Massachusetts, where I live. But the meat that we eat, the vegetables we eat, you know, they come from Jeremy's farm, where they are eating the scraps, the animals are eating the scraps. They have an incredibly low carbon footprint. All of this, um, I think, is possible for making people eat better and feel better about their lives and having a, you know, an enormously positive impact on the environment. So, uh, Charles C. Mann, author of 1491, author of the new book just released, The Wizard and the Prophet. Also check out your um, article in The uh, Atlantic, Can Planet Earth Feed 10 Billion People? I thank you so much for your time today. And um, I, what, one of the big takeaways I just loved is when you were talking about um, slavery and the people who ended slavery and the people who fought for GLBT rights and the people who fought for civil rights and the people who fought for women, they faced a lot of obstacles. And just like Borlaug faced a lot of obstacles, but what was driving them? What was driving them? A sense of what was right and a sense of what a better world would be like. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's wholly admirable. And I think that we forget that sometimes, mm-hmm. that in the past, people have repeatedly changed the world just by standing up. Stand up and change the world. Oh, yeah, transforming. Transforming, transforming the world. world. Yeah. Food Freedom Radio, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Laura.